Hello. Uh, good evening. We are in the in the section of parallel sessions of the conference, and we are session number one, fostering the future of collections. We will have uh, three regular presentations and one lighting talk. We will try to keep within the uh, schedule. Uh, but to me, it's important because it shows that uh, our colleagues have uh, expressed strong interest in this area. And we have, as a community, many things to say. Uh, so our first speaker comes from the United States of America, is uh, Daniel Cooper, who is a senior qualitative uh, researcher, in Ithaca, researcher in Ithaca. And the title, as you can see, is um, The Future of Academic Library Collections, The Scholar's Role, although we have a different title in the program, but it doesn't matter because Daniel will uh, explain to us. Daniel. Hi. Yes, same talk. I don't remember why I made the title different. We press on. Um, thanks so much to Lieber, um, the Lieber Organizing Committee for organizing this conference here at TCD. Um, it's definitely a massive undertaking, so my hat's off to everybody involved. Um, and my goal today is to share research on scholars that my organization, Ithaca, has done recently to talk about the work they're doing, collecting information as part of their research. So I'm actually going to begin with two examples of what I mean when I talk about the scholar as a collector. I begin with Justin McDaniel, who is a professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is a scholar aligned with Asian studies and religious studies there. And as you can see here, his research areas are in a variety of Asiatic languages, and he's doing humanistic work involving art, architecture, and manuscripts. And what's interesting about the way Justin does his work is that he has to travel three times a year to places like Vietnam, Cambodia, and he does this because that's where the materials for his research are. They are not digitized in any way, shape, or form. As you can see from the one image, he relies very heavily on the relationships he builds with people on the ground who are collecting these materials. And in order to work with them later on, after he's left these places, he takes pictures and he also collects materials himself that he brings back with him. So he is doing a lot of collecting type work on his own. He, he's what the kind of scholar we like though. He um, works a lot with librarians towards digitizing collections. Um, in particular, he works with a librarian at Cornell named Rich Ricky and a librarian at the University of Washington named Judith Henshi. So in essence, Justin is kind of the dream scholar. And something that I think about a lot in my work is how 
can we further leverage the activities of someone like Justin, who is collecting so much information on his own while he travels, um, and also knows to actually work with librarians to share this kind of content further. The second example I have will seem really, really different on the surface, because here we have an engineer who works with concrete. He is at MIT, and he does really interesting research on a nanoscale. Um, for example, one of his most recent projects was that he measured how concrete degrades over a one-year period um, using the time scale of the minute. So they measured minute by minute how the concrete is degrading, something that is certainly relevant to us as we sit in this lovely concrete room, <laughs> one of the um, most notable examples of brutalist architecture here in Ireland, probably one of the very, very few. So what Franz Joseph experiences is that he is collecting a lot of data when, uh, in the traditional sense of when we think of scientific data. Um, and his experience has been that only certain kinds of or amounts of this data needs to be collected to satisfy funder requirements. When the, the, the sheer degree of what would be useful to him and others in his field goes far, far beyond that, and the reality is, is that the infrastructures for sharing and working with this data are still very much in, in its infancy. Um, he, he is certainly familiar with librarians, but to Franz Joseph, it's actually the scholarly society that he is part of, which is um, ASCE, the American Society of Civil and Environmental Engineers, who he sees as needing to play a very central role in this kind of data sharing. So um, on the surface, we have two scholars in these examples that are coming from very, very different places in their research, but there is a similar issue here, which is that they're collecting far more data or creating far more data as part of their research that isn't being captured by cur current funder mandates. So that is, uh, in a nutshell, my question for this talk, which is how can we as librarians work with scholars to maximize the potential of their information collections in the 21st century. I'm going to explore a bit more about what it means to be a collector when you're a scholar and also examine some of the prevailing models we have for supporting that work and the stakeholders involved with that. And then I, I leave with some recommendations and look forward to your feedback as well. So I come to this topic from a very unique vantage point. I work for a not-for-profit that's based in the US, but I am not American. I think it's important to highlight that. <laughs> I'm Canadian. But Ithaca SNR is a not-for-profit based out of the US. And what we do is we do research with different kinds of cultural communities, including academic libraries, museums, scholarly societies, and publishers. And the goal is to understand primarily economic and techno technological changes that are taking place. In particular, we have a research group that is focused exclusively on understanding scholars' practices and needs. Um, and I recognize that this is a somewhat US-centric endeavor. 
So for example, we have a survey that we do every three years with US faculty on their research teaching and publishing practices. And we've been doing that since 2000, so we have a lot of really great comparative data. And the latest version of that survey was just published a couple of months ago. We also do projects on an ongoing basis that dive specifically into different disciplines and interdisciplinary practices. And we do that work collaboratively with libraries, um, as well as scholarly societies and publishers. So a bit more about this faculty survey that we do. Um, we published the 2018 cycle on April 12th, and these are the topics that we covered. Um, as you can see, it's very library relevant. Discovery and access, scholarly communications, research practices, including data curation, the role of the library and institutional practices, including open educational resources and learning analytics. And in terms of our inter, uh, interdisciplinary and disciplinary deep dives, these are all the studies we've done on how scholars are doing their research in various fields. As you can see, um, it's quite robust. And in particular, I want to flag that we have a number of studies that are, have either just launched or are going to launch in the next year. We're doing a study that just launched on teaching with primary sources. So for that project, myself and a group of librarians are going out and talking to faculty about how they're doing their teaching with primary sources. And we'll be doing a, a similarly designed study with the emphasis being on teaching with data in the social sciences next year. So if you have any interest in being a researcher, that is how these projects work, and I'm, I'm always happy to talk more about them. And the information I'm sharing today comes from these different studies. We did a meta-analysis or aggregate analysis across all of the different studies that have been done thus far and our survey data. And we created a research report, uh, myself with a co-author, Oya, called Scholars Are Collectors, Proposals for Rethinking Research Support that is already available openly online. So what, what does it mean when I speak about the scholar as a collector? Uh, and essentially, essentially, scholars create personal collections of materials over the course of their careers. These vary widely based on the kind of researcher they are. But the key here is that they are quite heterogeneous, even for the scholar themselves. Any one scholar is likely collecting of various forms of content or creating, or both. And they are also typically both digital and analog formats. One of the most important points that we find across our studies is that the reality is, is that only a very narrow group of researchers are actually talking about data or have data as relevant to their work. Whereas in the library world, there's quite an emphasis on data. So humanists, for example, are collecting a lot of content that could be really, really useful for other researchers, particularly the photos that they take when they go to archives. Because now, increasingly, archives are allowing scholars to take pictures when they're there. And this is often a lot better than the digitized content or finding aids that are available beyond, of course, the, the better resourced, very, very mainstream special collections. Um, but there's virtually nothing uh, in place to take something like those pictures and make them available to others. Now, even when we talk about data, 
the, the reality is, is that there's a huge disconnect between the kinds of data that scholars are creating and working with and what is usually used. Um, particularly, there's a, too much of an emphasis on what is known as big data. So here's a really great quote from Jane Kamensky. In an era where it is fashionable to talk about the power and promise of big data, much scholarship is still tiny data gathered by hand and involves touching and noticing small details. Um, so for example, the two images up here, the one at the top are, you know, literal cue cards that have been meticulously organized. And then at the bottom, we have somebody who's working on multiple screens at the same time while looking at a primary um, document. Another way of thinking about this disconnect between big data and the reality of how most people are working with data when they're scholars is what is known as the long tail. So whereas big data represents um, you know, huge data sources, um, there's relatively less scholars working in this way. However, the reuse value is much higher. They're typically better standard, there's better standardization um, and better organization. Whereas the reality is, is that you've got lots of scholars working with data that are much on a much smaller scale. Um, it could be one person or a small research team. It's a lot less clear what the reuse value would be if they were to share it with others. Um, and there's the data sets themselves are much smaller. I also think it's important to recognize that what we hear again and again from researchers in different fields is how there isn't just one moment and when people are doing their research where data or collections are created or amassed, that the scholar's workflow for doing their research is nonlinear. And so any sort of service or tool that can be designed to help work with scholars' collections needs to be done in such a way that there would be various intervention points. And finally, we hear a lot through our research at Ithaca about the challenges scholars have with their personal collections. Um, here we've tried to capture the four main areas to this. I won't go into detail on every single one, but in essence, you know, people have a hard time simply organizing their own content for themselves. Um, certainly storage is a problem, particularly over time. These collections are usually with people for their whole careers as they migrate and technology evolves. Preservation is often nowhere. A lot of times this stuff actually gets thrown out from people when they retire. And then finally, sharing is a question mark when you're, you're not quite sure what the value would be to other people. And once again, it's only in particular science fields where it's very um, cleanly mandated that you have to share that this kind of activity is happening. But then you have everybody else. So in terms of where we're currently at and how um, scholars as collectors are being supported, I uh, focus here on four different kinds of stakeholders, the funders, the advocacy groups, the external tool and service providers, sometimes referred to as vendors, and academic institutions. So in terms of research funders, as we know, there is just increasing expectations here from funders that different aspects of research be shared and made available. This sort of requirement, though, is not evenly enforced by, on a funder-by-funder -funder basis. 
So there is actually quite a few examples where people end up not complying as, as well as they're supposed to. And the reality is, is that there's considerably less funding for the infrastructure that is used to make this kind of content available. Particularly once you get beyond certain sciences, it's basically non-existent in a lot of the humanities. Then we have the open data advocacy groups. Here the issue is that there has been a much stronger focus on data as opposed to other forms of research content. This isn't a problem, but it is certainly the framing device. It's about the value to society and the research community as opposed to the individual researcher. So there's the experience you have when you're a researcher with your own content trying to comply with funders and make things work. And then there's the experience of, you know, thinking down the line 10, 20, 30 years to the research enterprise in general and advocacy groups typically focus on the latter, not the former. And um, as, a, as a North American, I cannot emphasize enough that you guys are way further ahead with this than we are. But we're all in it together. And the reality is, is that Americans in particular that do not have a nationalized system in the same way for their universities, getting people to comply with and be part of these sorts of um, ideals is much, much more challenging. Then we have the tool and service providers. These are the vendors. This, there are some really interesting tools that have come out to help people with managing their collections and working with them. Um, however, these are much more about the individual scholar than value to society, and there's a monetizing element to this. And then finally, we have the academic institutions. Here, too, we see a much stronger emphasis on research data management. So there's uh, less of an interest in the other kinds of content that scholars are creating and collecting. Um, there is a tendency towards not being centralized, but once again, this is much worse in the US than some parts of Western Europe, of course. And there is the reality that over time, it's just way too resource intensive for any one university to do this kind of work. Um, of course, the flip side to this, though, is that for academic institutions and libraries not to be involved in this kind of work um, has some real risks, particularly around decline in research productivity, work duplication, and service gaps. There are actual security risks that come from the IT side of this, and then there is a huge gap that is being created where vendors can come and fill and capitalize. So in terms of ways forward, uh, I suggest six things to think about, but I'm really looking forward to hearing from others about what they're doing. The first is really thinking about services that think about scholars as curators. So what I mean here isn't, is about designing services that aren't just about people who are creating certain kinds of data uh, especially um, anybody here in the archives and special collections world, the sorts of activities that can be done to actually support people coming to your archives and special collections who are taking pictures. Can you leverage that? What would that take? It's like citizen archives instead of citizen science, perhaps. Then we have, uh, the, again, being much more inclusive in how these uh, services are discussed research data management, 
Open science is really alienating part to social scientists and humanists. Um, again and again, when I, I do these studies, even people in the more humanistic social sciences have just, they don't think they're even doing, working with data. They don't even think they're creating it, even when they, you know, are collecting interviews. Then we have the reality that there's a lot that needs to be done around digital information fluencies um, and collaborating with tool providers. There needs to be more university-wide policies. And finally, we need to still recognize that a lot of what people are doing is tangible, not digital, or in some sort of hybrid space. So my questions for the audience are, I'd love to hear more about the more holistic services that you may be providing at your libraries, or whether or not you think that's not valuable. Um, particularly anything that's being done to support scholars with collections beyond the traditional big data type sciences. And to what extent can libraries actually be involved with the types of tools that are being created? One really amazing one, for example, is called Tropy. This is an actual app that people can have on their phone when they go to archives. They can go and when they take pictures, there's fields for them to write down the box number and their notes. This is just an organizational tool for the scholars. It would be amazing if there could be, for example, a plugin that then that metadata gets fed back to the archives. And once again, if you're interested in hearing more, um, I hope that you will read the actual issue brief, which is the fullest examination of this topic, which is available on the Ithaca website. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, I think we have time for a question or two. Thank you very much for this interesting presentation. I have one question. You don't differ between collections. You, say, uh, you said researchers may collect, libraries may collect, others may collect, private persons may collect, and so on. And I think there are big differences between the kind of collection. It's not only the question that you collect, it's also the question what you, collecting, what you are collecting. And um, I miss this a little bit in your presentation. Oh yes, in fact, the whole argument of my presentation is that libraries and, and other special collections should care more about the kinds of collections that scholars are making. So yes, I 100% recognize that there's a huge difference between, I don't know, journal articles, books, archival documents of famous people, but the reality is, is that scholars are collecting lots of different forms of content themselves over the course of their careers that would be of value to others. I do think that libraries and special collections should be more involved with that in terms of helping scholars as they make their own collections and making them available to others. And that for the most part, most libraries are really, if they're focused on that, they're focused on scientists and their data and complying with funding mandates. So um, that would be the distinction. Uh, I totally recognize that that is a very complicated thing to do. 
I think particularly the opportunity area is for archives and special collections to work with scholars who are going to other countries and taking documentation of what's going on in archives there that can't be made digitized or physically buying materials there. Lots of humanists have huge collections of content that they buy themselves and work with. One last question from Lars. Lars Burman, Uppsala, Sweden. In my uh, language, we have an expression when the best is the enemy of the good. This is, has to do for me with the good enough question. I mean, these humanistic collections, for example, they are not always up to librarians' standards. How to think about this good enough question when it comes to data and taking care of data in the way you are talking about? I love that point. I think also a huge barrier for archives is that we all agonize about our finding aids and how they need to like so perfectly represent what's there. And also the images that are put online of digitized collections. But the reality is, is that people don't have a lot of money to travel to archives. And so if people are taking good enough pictures of the collections, why, and they're willing to share them, why not put them online? Okay, thank you very much, Danielle. Okay, so um, the second. Um, presentation is coming from Liz Waller and Judy Berg uh, from Durham University, UK. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. We all awake? Yeah. Yeah. Yay, excellent. Um, so, um, as Janice says, my name is Liz Waller. I'm Director of Library Services and University Librarian at Durham University. I convey the apologies of my colleague Judy Berg, who is sunning herself in Cornwall at the moment. Um, I think she's sunning herself in Cornwall. One never knows with the weather in the UK. Um, I'd like just to quickly preface this, this um, presentation with thanks to some colleagues um, in Durham. Um, so first of all, Jonathan Bush, who's archivist at the Ushaw Library, um, to Alison Collingford, who's the Cathedral Librarian at Durham Cathedral, and academic colleagues, Professors David Cowling, Stephen Taylor, and Paul Murray, who've all assisted um, with both the work and the presentation, but also are actually the founder members of the Durham Residential Research Library itself. And it is a fantastic collaboration between service provider and academic, is the first quick thing to say. So to begin, um, a little bit about Durham. So Durham is a historic city and the county town of County Durham in the northeast of England. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the geography of the UK, um, well, actually of England, you see the picture up here on the screen. If you go kind of topish, rightish, you'll actually find Durham. So to the west of Sunderland, south of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and to the north of Darlington. The city is actually founded over the resting place of St Cuthbert, and its Norman cathedral became a centre of pilgrimage in medieval England. 
The cathedral and the adjacent 11th century castle were designated a World Heritage Site by UNESCO in 1986, and the castle there has been the home of Durham University since 1832. And usually, um, for bishops, the bishops of Durham had powers beyond those of other bishops, such as the ability to hold their own parliament, raise their own armies, appoint their own sheriffs and justices, administer their own laws, levy taxes and custom duties, um, salvage shipwrecks and collect revenues from mines, administer forests and also mint their own coins. They were very powerful people and were known as prince bishops. And it's the last of these prince bishops, um, Bishop William Van Mildert, who's credited with the foundation of Durham University in 1832. The university itself gained its royal charter in 1837. It's also the home of Lumiere, and Durham County Council would not forgive me if I did not give a plug for Lumiere. So the castle image you see here is actually part of our light festival. So if you'd like to visit us between the 14th and the 17th of November this year, you will see something truly spectacular. But to move on to the Durham Residential Research Library. So here is just on the screen what I'm going to skip over for you this afternoon in the next few minutes. Um, so first of all, we to have a look at some other UK-based um, research libraries. This is not meant to be comprehensive, but just a flavour of some of the institutions who have these um, library fellowships. So you see the list here. Now, there are similarities and differences to what we've been doing in, in Durham itself. Most of these fellowships are actually run by libraries in collaboration with academic colleagues, departments or institutes, and there's academic involvement in actually assessing applications for the fellowships. Most do have a specific focus, either within collection areas or by types of researcher, in some cases early career researchers. Many have twofold objectives, so to promote collections, sometimes flagship collections, but sometimes those that are more neglected, and also to add to the research ecosystem, if you like. So perhaps building research links or helping nascent projects spring to life. They are sometimes linked to digitisation projects, so similar drivers in terms of providing access to material which has an international audience. So perhaps by providing remote access or helping to fund research visits to the collection. Most projects actually require their fellows to deliver some kind of output, be it a talk or a lecture or a paper following their visit. Particular ones to pick out in this context are, are Manchester John Ryland's library, colleagues here from Manchester um, today. The key aim for their fellowships is to lead on something. So it could be leading on a research grant, a digital humanities project, etc. So bringing researchers into Manchester to build collaborations um, with scholars and fellows there. Also St Andrews. St Andrews is interesting because actually their fellowships are open to any interested researcher. They don't have to have a university affiliation. And then lastly, to draw up Southampton. So probably the one most similar to our Durham Research um, Library um, it's actually run in partnership with Chawton House Library, so one's home to Jane Austen's brother Edward, and has women's literature, um, 1600 to 1830. So in all of these examples, the collections and fellowships are seen as being very closely linked 
and really important as part of the research environment. So how did the Durham Residential Research Library come about? So in June 2011, Ushaw College, which is four miles to the west of Durham City, ceased to function as the Roman Catholic Seminary for Northern England. In addition to its impressive buildings, the college has large and remarkable collections of books, archives, musics, paintings and artefacts which date back many, many centuries. The main part of the collection is housed in a purpose-built room, the Big Library. It is called the Big Library and it's constructed around 1850. It, it itself has great historical significance. Now, parts of the collection have been available to Durham researchers for some decades, but there were problems around access to the collections and around cataloguing, which meant it was understood by a, a very small number of people. Now, as the college was faced with closure, there was a real threat that those collections would be moved out of the northeast or even dispersed across different collections. But the University Centre for Catholic Studies at that point had discussions with the college trustees with the aim of seeing how those collections might be retained in their original site at Ushaw for the use of Durham, scholars and students. But it also led to the potential for creating that residential research library there. So um, I should just say, this is the big library. I should have said that to begin with. And this is actually Peter Seed on the left, who's the ops manager at Ushaw, and Professor David Cowling there on the right. So what are the differences around the Durham Residential Research Library? So our fellowships offer research opportunities across the collections of three separate institutions. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Much better. Um, these themselves have very interesting commonalities. Um, one, for example, is that each collection contains items from the Durham Priory Library, um, the books owned and used by the Benedictine Monastery of Durham and its dependent cells. Um, and that actual Durham Priory Library is currently the focus for digitisation project at Durham. So fellows can focus their research in one particular collection or place or study material across all three institutions. So particularly valuable for researchers who are wanting to use manuscript and early book collections. There are those collection strengths across the three. It's very rare to have such flexible funding to actually roam across different collections at different institutions. The second thing, it's not actually a library fellowship or strictly a library fellowship. It includes the collections of all three partners, which on the university side feature our museum collections. So within that we have archaeology, oriental museum collections of absolute international breadth. We also have very much the vision of the residential research community, which brings together a community of scholars who work or live together, and that is challenging, but we also have strong efforts to embed the fellows in the work of the university through talks, dinners and, and other kinds of events. So there's very much we are together as one. It's not about a, just a lone scholar. We do need to emphasise that this is in very early stages. There's still a lot of work to do, but we hope that the breadth of our collections will encourage applicants working across several types of collections. So perhaps material culture, comparative religion, etc. 
So now just a quick scamper through the different partners to kind of highlight what we're looking at here. So as I've already said, Durham University founded in 1832. Um, here's the bit from marketing. Durham is now one of the world's leading universities, holding a world top 100 position in the QS World University Rankings 2020, where we are ranked 78th in the world and 24th in Europe. And it is something of which we are extremely proud. We have four faculties, Arts and Humanities, Business, Science and Social Science and Health, and a total student population of 18,707. And we have 130 countries represented across staff and student population. We are very international. We have over 4,300 staff and 40% of our academic staff have non-UK origin. Our collections, so Durham University collections, well, Durham University Library began with Bishop Cousins Library in the 1800s, still in its original building in Durham and an integral element of the World Heritage Site. Our collections span from prehistory to the present day. Alarmingly, for collection space planning, we are the natural place of deposit for any archaeological finds in Durham. Durham's old. We get lots of archaeological finds. We have four designated collections. So that since 1997, the National Designation Scheme has identified the best collections held in museums, libraries and archives across England. So the first is Cousins Library, very significant for the history of libraries and ecclesiastical history, both locally and nationally. The Sudan Archive, for the study of the Sudan in the period of the British administration. And then we have our Egyptian and Chinese collections in our Oriental Museum. So the Egyptian collection is one of the best Egyptology resources in Britain. And the Chinese collection is one of the most comprehensive in Europe. And that goes from early dynasties right up to the contemporary Chinese printmakers. Statistics on the screen if you like statistics, if you need to have a look at those. So moving on to the cathedral, so the community of St Cuthbert arrived in Durham in 995 and built a cathedral. And the community of Benedictine monks was established in 1083. So really that is when education started um, in Durham. The construction of the present cathedral was started in 1093 by um, Bishop William of Calais. Any visiting film fans amongst you may recognise the cathedral from Harry Potter and more recently, the Avengers Endgame. Um, this is the interior of Asgard, as featured there. Its library is absolutely fascinating. So it held the Priory Library before that was dissolved in 1539, but it is now the largest in situ medieval monastery library. It has over 300 medieval manuscripts. It's also one of the best catalogued Benedictine libraries, Lots of the medieval and early modern catalogues still survive. Overall, the Dean and Chapter Library contains 75,000 volumes, 60 in Cannabula and 2,000 manuscripts, incredibly rich. It is one of the most complete and extensive monastic archives to survive in Britain in its original location. It has three copies of the Magna Carta, and one of those from November 1216. It's the only one in existence. And I can't not mention the treasures of St Cuthbert. 
So including artefacts such as the golden and garnet petrol cross of St Cuthbert and his original coffin. Ushaw, no less spectacular. So a former Catholic seminary near the village of Ushaw, Moor in County Durham, founded in 1808 by scholars who were fleeing from the English college in Douai after the French um, Revolution there. Mm -hmm. And we've had involvement with them since six, 1968. So the library collection actually dates back to its very origins um, in the English College at Douai. Fantastic book collections. There was a concept here of a, a university, a Catholic university. So not just books on theology, but science, history, law, philosophy, incredibly broad. So a little more about the Durham Residential Research Library. Why, why are we doing this? What's the strategic objectives around this? So firstly, increasing the international research reputation of the university. We wanted to attract scholars from across the world to use the rich collections um, of the three partners, and particularly to boost the research reputation of the university. So visiting scholars are very much encouraged to participate in the academic and social life of the university, and that provides a lot of opportunities to forge relationships with Durham academics, leading to lots of collaborative working. The university has actually taken responsibility for the collections housed at Ushaw. So we are cataloguing those and we provide access. And the good reputation we've built up for management of those collections and our commitment to Catholic collections has actually led to further deposits of archives subsequently. So most recently we've actually taken the archive from the Canonesses of the Holy Sepulchre. We are starting to see funding bids going in on the back of the research fellowships. So one from recently from Pakistan, a fellow who worked with our Marshall collection um, of images. And lastly, geography. We are very proud to be in the north. So it's the establishment of a research fellowship that will draw researchers to the northeast and to its collections and away from that golden triangle of Oxford, Cambridge and London. I'm starting now to feature a few interesting finds um, from Ushaw. So what you see on the screen now is a draft facsimile of a poem by Byron, later published as On the Death of the Duke of Dorset, dating from the early 19th century. Mm -hmm. It's an early draft of the poem with notable differences from the published version. And this was discovered by one of our catalogers, just put inside a published volume of Byron's poems. So, our challenges. No initiative comes without its challenges. And firstly, there is the distance between the three institutions. And it sounds as if I'm saying there are hundred, hundreds of miles between the two. There are not. So the university and the cathedral walking distance. Usher is a challenge. There's poor public transport. So unless fellows are actually bringing transport with them, transport is definitely a challenge. So transport, and actually it is the north, so occasionally weather also proves to be a challenge. What we see we need to do is really build up a good cohort of fellows together, so actually distances become perhaps less of a problem. There's an interesting challenge around the different um, levels of capacity of three institutions for supporting visiting researchers. Um, the university contributes finances for fellows and much of the staffing for access to Ushaw, 
And we have a lot to gain from enhancing that research reputation. Our fellow partners, perhaps less so, and they do have less resource to give. And lastly there, communication and coordination. Application and assessment process for fellows across three institutions with three different collections can also prove quite difficult. So where are we up to? So cataloguing is going really, really well. So we're up to 80% catalogued of the early printed and special collections material. We anticipate that will be finished by 2021. You can find everything on our library catalogue, as you can Durham Cathedral's collections as well, because we host their catalogue. This is another new find. This is Dr Benjamin Pohl, who is one of our fellows, who discovered the Royal Charter, or a Royal Charter of King John, which you see on the left, and an earlier charter by Bishop Hugh de Preset from before 1183. We have internationalised our fellowships, so in our 28 fellows, 12 from England, 5 US, 2 Scots, 2 Australians, 2 from Italy, 1 Pakistan, 1 from Canada, 1 from Ireland, 1 from Hungary, and 1 from Switzerland so far. Whoops, my apologies, skipped. So has it been worth it? Well, absolutely. For the university, we've seen a real increase in the uptake of collections and in our reputation. We have made amazing partnerships with our visiting fellows and they in turn have made some amazing finds in the various collections. We've gained publicity. Um, King John Charter was featured in national um, television and we've had some great successes. But probably the strongest benefit is the recognition through the programme that collections are the foundation of high quality research and research collaborations and it's really pushed our profile within the organisation. And I'm now going to beg indulgence, because I'm going to run over time very slightly. I'm guessing, oh, I've had a nod, you're okay. You can read these yourselves, but I was at dinner um, last week with one of the um, Durham Residential Research Fellows um, from the University of Glasgow, and she was talking to me about how much she had valued the, the um, fellowship and the difference it had made for her research. So I'm now going to read you what she sent me after that dinner last week. As someone who works extensively with early modern books, my research is a time-intensive and usually costly affair. Even with a substantial research allowance from my home institution, I find that I still require to supplement my institutional fellowship with external research funds. In this, I am very fortunate, and most colleagues will find it even more urgent to secure funding enabling them to spend time doing hands-on research. This necessity rises significantly for junior colleagues and students who have an interest in research but find it difficult to take the first step on the funding ladder. By stressing the importance of collection-based research, residential research fellowships promote exploratory work, discoveries, and the enhanced awareness of the cultural heritage preserved in our institutions, as well as materially supporting scholarly and cross-disciplinary exchanges. If there is one downside to a significant length of time away from home, it's the loneliness and isolation that derives from long periods of fieldwork. Arts and humanities scholars face a real struggle in this, 
as we tend to pursue individual rather than team-led work, with the result that prolonged fieldwork becomes a draining experience. Durham has dealt wonderfully well with this by electing a coordinator for the Residential Research Library Fellowships, who is actively committed to bridging the gap between the Durham community and the visiting fellows. The last thing I would like to stress is a very practical one, and I hope you'll forgive me this very prosaic comment. Money can be a very real problem when it comes to organising fieldwork away from home. Durham has arranged all of this in an exemplary way, payment of the fellowship before arrival, agreement to delay rent, etc. I should stress that this is particularly important for colleagues on temporary contracts or for independent scholars, and the only viable way for them to participate in this programme. Thank you. We have time for only one question to Liz. Yes, please. Hi, Liz. I'm Laura Shanahan from Trinity College. Hi. Just a quick question about how the fellowships are funded hmm. at Durham. Yeah. So um, this is where I need to give um, credit to my colleagues from Development and Alumni Research Office. Um, they have done an absolutely amazing job in reaching out to friends of the university who they think will be interested in this type of project. And it's been incredible, the response from donors. Um, so one, they know who to target, so they know who's interested in this area. And two, they do a fantastic sales pitch. Um, the dinner I spoke about last Tuesday was actually um, featured the Lendrum Fellowship, part of the Residential Research Library. And our donors, uh, Chris and Margaret Lendrum, were actually there on that occasion. Um, and their sheer excitement in the work that's going on and getting them involved in meeting with fellows, looking at some of the collections we've been using has been a, a fantastic experience. So it's um, thumbs up to our, our Darrow colleagues, basically. Okay, once again, thank you very much, Liz. Now we are moving to the third presentation by Nathalie Farger, uh, François Cavalier, and Catherine uh, Desos-Wagnier. And it's going to be a third presentation by the two colleagues here. Can we have some technical help? Here, so I'm just going to get somebody from outside. I'll be back in a minute. Yeah. 
Okay, so you will excuse us for a couple of minutes until we solve this technical problem. Um, People are coming now. Not a good idea. <laughs> Frozen, we could not find the, the cursor. Yeah. Now, now it came back, so we just need to log in again. Okay, now, now it seems. No, no, we need to close this. You're closing? Okay, yes, sorry. We are closing this and we need to um, open Cavalier. Uh, third, third one, yes. Yes, this one. Now, is it? Hmm? Which is cut now going live? Uh, no, it, uh, we lost the camera Excellent. and we could not cut okay. the How to change? Uh, it's a, with yes, the either from here or you know from the. Okay. Yeah. Apologies for that. Okay, thank, thank you for your patience, dear colleagues. Uh, it's our pleasure. Of, uh, to Nathalie Fagier and I to present you a recent national program uh, set up in order to bring uh, librarians and researchers closer around the use of collections and materials for research. Its name is uh, Collex. Uh, Collex uh, doesn't come f uh, out of the blue. Uh, there is a prehistory for Codex with the CADIS network created in 1983 at a moment when budget cuts had seriously decreased the capacity of French academic libraries to offer the collection the researchers needed. There was a, a, a similar network in, in Germany uh, called the Sondersammelgebietengebibliothek, and I think it's the right term. Um, at this time, a, a lot of subscriptions were cancelled um, at the end of the uh, 70s and beginning of the 80s. So uh, the Higher Education and Research Ministry decided to fund a, a, a bit more than 20 libraries to help them to offer reference collection in specific scientific fields. Grants was used to range from um, 25,000 uh, euros up to 
800,000 euros for uh, scientific uh, fields. Kedis libraries had to supply books and articles via interlibrary loan, and about um, 83 million euros were spent over 20 years uh, for uh, developing these collections. Uh, at the end of the 90s, Cadiz Network began to be seen as an obsolete model for collection development uh, as electronic res resources grow were growing up and as very little money were spent uh, in, uh, on them in Cadiz Network. So uh, it was also uh, the time uh, when uh, Couperin the French National uh, Consortium for Electronic Resources were created. In, uh, in, in, in 2014, the ministry asked a few librarians to brainstorm on a new model, and as a result, Colex emerged as a new one focused on integrating services to print and digitize materials and on supporting projects built with resources and not with researchers and not only based on libraries' needs and wishes. Uh, I think it's interesting to give you an overview of uh, the French uh, and the French uh, scientific information landscape. As you can see, Collects Per Se is one out of four research infrastructures funded by the Higher Education Ministry. Um, after Collects, Hall, uh, is the national open archive repository for uh, France and with less uh, uh, than uh, 2 million references and um, about uh, 600,000 uh, full text documents. Open Edition is a platform for publishing social sciences productions in open access and Numidif develops a standardized ecosystem for digital production as well as specific tool for dissemination. Uh, for example, it runs an integrated XML-based workflow. Uh, as far as uh, legal aspects are concerned, uh, la, la loi pour une république numérique, in, in 2016, the law for the digital republic was designed by the government as a framework for the development of the digital, digital economy. It includes legal measures to limit the duration of publishers' embargoes on scientific articles. Scientific publications will be freely available after a six-month embargo for STM publications and a 12-one for, for uh, humanities and social sciences articles. In 2018, the Ministry endorsed a national plan for open science Four committees were set up to advise the ministry in fostering researchers to get involved in, uh, in open science. Uh, publication, data management, dissemination, and uh, uh, risk killing are the different issues uh, addressed by this committee. Um, turning back to colleagues, how does it work? Uh, Collect is a scientific infrastructure backed by PERSE, a national digital facility for digitization and digital humanities run by my colleague Nathalie Fargi. All academic libraries, uh, at this time, all academic libraries were invited to bid to take part in Collects. The criteria for their selection were 
the size of their collections, print and digital, the scope of the services they offered to research, their ability to take part in partnerships, their link with the researchers, what they planned to achieve around uh, researchers' needs in terms of collections and materials for research, and on top of that, how they intended to lead the library's network in their fields. At the end of the process, uh, 19 libraries were selected, and 10 of them are at the core at, of the administrative structure and play a leading role in the management of colleagues. They play uh, this role with uh, four national stakeholders, uh, the CNRS, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, the, national, uh, the French National um, uh, Agency, uh, Bibliographic Agency, and uh, CTLES, a, a shared print document preservation facility. So all these uh, uh, bodies are uh, at the board of uh, colleagues. Uh, Colex also started uh, its job with the labelization of collections. Uh, I told you that libraries had to bid to take part in Colex, but they also could bid to have their collection labelized through a range of criteria. This labelization will be the base for a national cartography of collections. Uh, goals and challenges. The first and main one is to promote the use of, of collection and research materials by enhancing their visibility and by engaging libraries, librarians and researchers in common projects. For us, Collects is as well a way to reach a better use of resources and also to transform the way librarians are working in order to get them closer to real researchers' needs. The focus is not only on collections, print and digital, but also on other research materials. We should address the whole scope of materials, collections, pictures, publications, archives, data. All the materials productive and needed by researchers. So, Collects addresses a large range of issues dealing with digitization, acquisitions, collection mapping, long-term preservation, document delivery, but it will also support initiatives dealing with handling digital, digitized corpuses, data visualization software, and text and data mining. How it, is it governed and funded? Uh, we have three, it's a, a classical uh, frame. We have three committees, a steering committees with the presidents of the uh, librarians in, involved in uh, collects and uh, the representatives of the, the, the national bodies, a scientific committee with researchers, and a management committee and uh, several working groups. Collects is run by uh, the BNU, Bibliothèque Nationale Universitaire de Strasbourg, whose director acts as the chair of the management committee. The admin structure so is in Strasbourg and hosts the project manager in charge of coordinating the network and the call for proposals. There is also a communication officer. The annual budget is uh, more than uh, 5 million euros 
like it was for the CADIST uh, network. And uh, COLLEX is uh, designed as an experimentation program for five years, and we will have to assess it uh, at this time. I give the floor to my colleague, Nathalie Farger. Hello. Now, as Francois presented the general background, the aims and the current organization of Collex Per Se, I will going to give you a, a short glimpse of the first achievement, and I will finish the talk by a uh, feedback and some perspectives. Um, so within Collex Per Se, we identified two types of actions, actions that take time to materialize uh, because they involve many actors and significant changes in library practice. These long-term actions require progress in regular stages all through the next five years and targeted action with visible results more quickly. In 2018, Collex Per Se launched its first call for project with a budget of 1.6 million euro. And such a mechanism is not an end in itself. We just considered it as an incentive way to uh, strengthen and or foster the collaboration between researchers and librarians. The call was quite broad in its scope and it aims to encourage digitization projects, but also the development of services around library collection. And the maximum funding was seven, uh, 70,000 euro that can be used to hire staff to do IT development and also to organize study days or even training course. It was quite open, but there was two mandatory conditions. Uh, projects have to have a scientific purpose and have to be carried out by a mixed team of librarians and researchers. As far as the um, reviewing process is concerned, in fact, we associated uh, technical expertise provided by librarians and a scientific assessment made by the scientific committee of colleagues per se. So all the projects were evaluated according to twofold approaches. In the end, we founded 41 projects uh, up, uh, out of the 93 projects submitted. Most of them were uh, digitization projects, but also there was a, an important number of projects that focus on the improvement of existing scissories uh, and uh, authority files on data management uh, on research data management and other projects propose also uh, some experimentation to bring the researcher back to the library with Data Lab and Hackathon. Um, digitization is a priority action of colleagues per se, and this access is supported by per se that has significant results in expertise in, the, in this field as a national facility. And currently, it's quite obvious that digitization is very far from being a blank field. There exist many achievements and recognized actors uh, within the French academic library. But there are also a lot of weaknesses, and a study conducted in 2018 showed that uh, some libraries are not always able to maintain their digitization 
digitization effort over time and to meet the, the increasing sophisticated needs of the researchers. So our objective was to propose a coordinated plan um, that would provide a solution to this situation and would mark a breakthrough uh, from previous digitization accent. In fact, we follow three guiding principles. The first one is that researchers has to be considered at the target audience of the plan. For them, one of the main uh, interests of digitization is that the digitization facilitates the access to collection, but now their needs go behind access, even if the access can be improved. More and more, they consider digitized collection as data, and they have higher requirements. For example, markup documents, semantic enrichment, and tools for manipulating and visualizing this document. Second principle, library have to adopt a service-oriented logic and have to rely more on stakeholders that have expertise in IT and web development and digitization. Uh, third and last principle, uh, we consider that the right scale of intervention of colleagues per se is to fund projects, to pool technical resources, to ensure the interoperability and to recommend methods, formats and tools. So, as a result, the orientation adopted is that of an enriched and qualitative digitization of the collection at the service of which is the researchers and not a massive digitization. There is no focus for us on the specific field or discipline. There will not be a single collects per se a portal dissemination, but rather a multipolar dissemination. So the scope is quite open, but always linked to research uh, issue. So in the coming year, Collex Per Se will support the production and the dissemination of digitized corpora considered as scholarly resources. Uh, Collex Per Se will keep on supporting existing initiative uh, for the open dissemination of archive of French scientific publication and will coordinate action to enhance the visibility of the archives produced by the researchers and also the French dissertation. And at last, it will fund scholar in residence program to encourage researchers to visit libraries and to make use of their collection and materials and also to develop the research culture within the libraries. As another example of what is done in uh, collects um, uh, towards um, mapping collection. <laughs> Uh, Collects intends to design a new cartography of collections and research materials. Uh, so, uh, as an experimentation, uh, Sciences Po has set up a cartography of uh, research centers and libraries in political science in collaboration with the French Association uh, for Political Science. This cartography provides an institutional and informational review of academic research in political science field. For each research center, you will get uh, all its uh, administrative information, but also the description of its do doctoral school, research fields, publications in open access, and its resources in documentation. We have recently implemented um, a back-office system to allow 
to allow researchers and research centers to update the data and news uh, concerning their, their own uh, research center. So it's a specific uh, cartography and the, the, the big one that Collex intends to, to, to do and which is led by the National Bibliographic uh, Agency and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France will be will proba probably look uh, differently, but it's a, uh, it's a kind of thing that we can uh, do. So, Thank you. Um, so, uh, so to, to get the librarians in, involved and to promote this new initiative, Collex Perse and the members of the network organized different kinds of events. Some of them were quite traditional, so, such as study days, and others more post participatory, such as bib camp and workshop. Um, Collex Perse is a young initiative with less than two years of existence. It is quite an exploratory uh, organization and quite complex, I have to say also. So we try with uh, Francois to, to, you know, to, to make a first assessment. So we considered that networking was quite uh, a success because libraries are eager to share good practices and initiatives and to have some help to face technical organizations organizational issue. With regard to researchers, they seem to consider very positively colleagues per se, the call for pro projects and the, the willingness to focus on their needs. But however, improvements are, are needed and uh, librarians and researchers have to keep on making mutual efforts to better understand each other. The former must take into account real researchers' needs and not those they imagine and the latter must assimilate the interest of standards and, and formats and the imperative of sustainability. Uh, also, in this initial phase of development, Collex Perse is very self-centered, we have to admit, and I think it's really time to build partnership with other organizations or network in France, for example, and I'm thinking uh, uh, on archives, but also abroad, and uh, the Liber conference and this presentation is for us a perfect place to begin exchanges and meeting colleagues. Um, to conclude, um, so in the coming years, Collex Perse will continue its effort on digitization, obviously, but will support also other programs. Uh, in 2020, there will be a focus on long-term preservation of uh, print, digital, and also digitized content. Uh, it, uh, Collex Perse will intend to implement an operational web solution to improve the invisibility of library collection. It will be the result of uh, the extension of the Sciences Po cartographie. And uh, also, uh, Collex Perse will organize concerting, purchasing, and licenses of specific electronic resources. But in this context, um, finding additional financial resources, consolidating the current network and building a solid network with other French and European organizations are essential. And uh, we will consider maybe that we'll, maybe we will reach our objective if libraries not only become support of research projects, but also collaborator, collaborators of those projects. Thanks for your attention. Thank you very much.
Um, we have time for one question, and I apologize for being, let's say, so hurried, but we have the meetings of participants uh, right after this session. So do we have any questions? Okay, so thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, and now we have <laughs> the last talk, which is a lighting talk. It was supposed to be um, shorter. We managed to save some time for uh, Shane Moe, uh, Gail McElroy, and Sarah uh, Sanahan from Team 3 uh, College Dublin here. Uh, to talk about this exhibition of political cartoons that we heard earlier. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you to Lieber also for the opportunity to present this lightning talk on my recent experience as co-curator with Professor Gail McElroy on the temporary exhibition in the old library and the foyer of the Berkeley Library called Drawing Your Attention, Four Centuries of Political Caricature. Um, a bit like Liz, I suppose, with her, um, we're inspired with our titles like the big library, we have the old library, but we've gone one better with the long room as well, which you may see over the next uh, few days while you're here. Um, in 2012, the library celebrated its 300th anniversary with a publication documenting the history of the building and its collections. In it, I noted that the library received 470,000 visitors per year. Last year, this figure had more than doubled by November when we entertained our one millionth visitor for the year. Marked increases in visitor numbers from Ireland and the US were recorded during this time. Between October 2018 and May 2019, we had the pleasure of welcoming over 180,000 visitors from America and a similar um, figure from our main tourist markets whose main language is not English. Further to this, we have recorded a significant increase on these figures of visitors from other countries outside our chief markets at over 120,000 people. This suggests we truly are a global destination for tourists. For exhibition creators, such a large and diverse footfall makes identification of target audience a real genuine challenge. These statistics, however, identify just one of many concerns faced when planning an exhibit. Location is another. While the potential to engage with the collections housed in the old library, uh, in our, what I mentioned, the long room, you can see where we get the title, um, the opportunity is infinite, really. With so much, we're so strong in so many of the uh, subjects and interests that people will be interested in. The building itself is in the highly unusual position of being both a working academic research library and one of Ireland's most popular visitor attractions. The era of slow, solely displaying visually strong exhibits under glass cases for the admir admiration of our visitors is pretty much a relic of the past. As far back as 2000, the year 2000, curators decided to look beyond the display cases, which you see here in the long room, in an effort to broaden the visual appeal with an addition of large exhibition panels and the installation of pop-up banners. Exhibitions today 
incorporate physical and digital content, multi-dimensional design and interactive features and are wide-ranging in their subject matter. Our exhibition, launched on the 7th of June by former President of Ireland, Dr Mary Robinson, strives to incorporate much of these features and is bolstered by a marketing campaign via numerous social and mainstream media channels. I'm happy to report too that the online version of the work was launched just last Friday. Successful presentations generally rely heavily on cooperation between various libraries and college departments, and indeed, in many cases, a positive relationship with similar organisations willing to lend their holdings. This current exhibition is no different. Permanent, permanent Book of Kells exhibitions, the Book of Kells picturing the word, and most recently, Turning Darkness into Light, located on the ground floor of the old library, make a significant contribution to the overall visitor experience. However, their existence over the years has also afforded research collection staff the opportunity to broaden the themes of our temporary long-room exhibitions as we look beyond Kells. The merits of any proposed exhibition is discussed by the library's exhibition operational group. Regardless of its size, the exhibition really should strive to enhance the visitor experience to the old library. Visitors should exit the building with a positive impression of their time spent within, display the library and its collections in good light, pretty obvious I'd imagine, advance collaborative research with Trinity staff or the students, help advance the library's philanthropic agenda, and exhibitions should provide a mechanism for further capitalisation through workshops, symposias, Libra talks perhaps, uh, visits from dignitaries, etc. It should advance its curator's research profile and professional experience, and also display recent and future uh, collection development policies, including our 21st century holdings, which you may not be aware of when you see how historic the building is. And finally, ideally demonstrate collaborations with groups with whom the library has not traditionally partnered. The current exhibition meets many of these goals as we celebrate the donation of the Nicholas Robinson collection of political caricature and loan material from Martin Turner's personal archive. By expanding the exhibition space to incorporate the Berkeley Library, we have for the first time moved beyond the paywall of admission fees to the long room and thus helped to raise the profile of our collections of caricatures. With the ongoing commitment to public engagement, I think this strong open access element to the exhibition allows members of the public unable or unwilling to pay for the Book of Kells exhibition to freely view our collections. We aim to gain a new understanding of our visitors' experience through this exposure and the novel use of the foyer of the Berkeley Library. So what is in the exhibition? I suppose cartoons, by their very nature, are universally appreciated. This familiarity with a vital, was a vital attribute for us as we were planning a summer exhibition that will see such a large footfall. We deliberately chose exhibits that convey a strong political message with little text present and ones that we really hope will resonate with our international audience. We also accommodated some significant yet less accessible exhibits such as James Gilray's The Reception of the Diplomatique and his Suite at the Court of Peking, where we display it with an explanatory caption and match it with this slide, a contemporary cartoon, Turner cartoon, which helps to put the work in better context for our visitors. As a precursor to the current exhibition, I was involved in the long room trial project. 
the main aim of which was to gauge how best to enhance visitor experience in the long room by creating and installing information hubs. With our Dutch design partners, Studio Lauter and Opera, we created a design book for two different information carriers, one a physical barrier with text and the other a similar stand with two separate digital touchscreens for our visitors. The overall concept or theme was one of privilege. We are privileged that libraries such as ours exist today and people get to visit. And the content of the information barriers aim to give our visitors a privileged feeling as they discovered the secrets of this special place. We evaluated three different scenarios, the long room without any added information, a scenario with just the text barrier installed, and finally the full installation of text and digital. Evaluation was carried out by surveying visitors. Roughly 200 visitors were canvassed of their opinion, and the click data from the digital screens was also analysed. We learnt a lot about the suitable locations for the devices and what content proved popular. The click here to know more button on our quizzes, quizzes and polls received the most clicks, but, they, but received significantly less hits on information about individual holdings that we uh, wrote about. The current exhibition is being treated as a benchmarking mechanism to better understand the audiences and the impact of contact with special collection material. From the experience of the long room trial, we are developing an audience impact plan. With the help of student ambassadors who will be conducting an impact survey with visitors, the evaluation stage will assist with future exhibitions and public engagement planning. Our aims include learning more of visitors' awareness of the exhibition before they visit the library, which I think will be very interesting. Their actual recognition of the exhibit in the long room. We have people before in the past who've actually gone through to see the Book of Kells and I'd overhear them in the long room wondering where is the Book of Kells, even though they've just come from it. So this, this should make for an interesting finding. Uh, thoughts on the content, theme, size, method of display, etc. Uh, the numbers who also viewed the new, the new exhibition space in the Berkeley Library will be very interesting for us, and the impact of the exhibit in enhancing the overall long room experience. And finally, for flow, the flow of our tours, the actual time spent viewing the exhibit should prove interesting. So it just remains for me to say thank you to my co-curator, Gail, and uh, Head of Research Collections, Laura Shanahan, and of course, Nicholas Robinson for his generous donation, and last but not least, to Martin Turner for allowing us to display his brilliant work. So please pop along uh, and enjoy the rest of your stay in Dublin over the last few day next few days. Thank you very much, Sean. Um, do we have a question for Sean? Yes, please, please. I was just thinking the, the, the political cartoons would be fantastic to actually do outreach with schools. And I wondered if you'd used that material in that kind of way. Um, we haven't really. Um, there's a project. Well, I suppose one good thing is that the, all the cartoons that you'll see as you queue up to view the, the exhibition, um, are freely available to view online. We, every cartoon we have, well, roughly two, over 2,000 of them, have been digitised and are freely available through our digital collections portal. But um, because of the condition of them, now they have been conserved, they're quite brittle, and as single sheet material, um, they have to be viewed in-house. So 
Um, we certainly do have groups coming in visiting, but we haven't done anything specific with the, this specific collection. Thank you very much. Uh, we are ready to go to uh, the plenary session for the meeting of participants. I would like to thank all uh, uh, speakers for keeping their time, you for your attendance. Thank you.